Hey Intelligence Squared listeners, producer Faye Adobita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligence Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favourite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic and broadcaster Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Lewis Gordon, the leading philosopher, activist, and also musician, discusses black identity and how culture, from academia to music and film, plays a crucial role in shaping perceptions. Professor Lewis Gordon is the department head for philosophy at the University of Connecticut, and his ideas investigate concepts ranging from existentialism to pop culture. His latest book is Fear of Black Consciousness, an exploration that combines academic theory and also his thoughts on cultural phenomena such as movies like Black Panther and Get Out in order to both inform and challenge readers about the nuances of black experience. Our host for this discussion is Paul Gilroy. Paul is one of the UK's most influential scholars on race and culture, an author and founding director of the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. Here's Paul with more. Lewis, this is a really interesting and provocative book. It's an intervention. It seems to me to be a position book, if I could call it that, which draws on large and significant body of work. So I want to ask you, to begin our conversation, what kind of a philosophical intervention is involved in this book? And how would you distill and articulate what you would, might think of as the theodicy of this text? That's always been one of my favourite of your concepts. So how do you read your own intervention here with that idea in mind? Well, first, thank you, Paul. It's wonderful to see you. In terms of this book, the first thing I'd like to say is there are many ways people talk about theory, philosophy, ideas, but they often talk about them in ways that make them lose sight, that ultimately we're talking about human beings' relationship with reality. And one of the difficulties of our relationship with reality is that we have many creative ways of avoiding it. Now, in terms of 
the text itself then, if one is going to raise this question, it means one has to raise it not only critically, but self-critically. In other words, there must be always a moment in which even the author, the thinker, must bring herself, his self, or their self into question. And this is an act of humility that also exemplifies the ethics and the responsibility to truth. I wonder, I mean, I was thinking a lot reading it, actually. Um, I was thinking a lot of our dear, dear beloved uh, um, bell hooks, Gloria Watkins, who's a, a friend to both of us, and um, from whom I think I can say, you know, certainly for myself, I, I learned a, a great deal, um, not just about ideas and politics, but about, about life and about joy and about love as a revolutionary uh, force. And there is there's some sense, I felt, of your um, having just lost her. Maybe I was acutely uh, sensitive to the, the kind of continuity between some of the things that you are articulating in this book and some of her own very distinctive and idiosyncratic uh, commentaries on the world, which, which uh, are, are profound in ways that are connected to your appetite for profundity, but never, never, ever lofty, and use, as you have done here, a range of different popular examples and cultural motifs as a way of opening up these questions for a very wide readership. That's absolutely on point, Paul. Uh, yes, I'm among those who love and miss Belle dearly. And one of the things I tweeted uh, when Belle passed was, you know, there are many things people are going to say about Belle. But there's something that uh, the three of us have in common. And Bell exemplified that, which is her, she had a lifelong search and understanding of the complexity, profundity, and value of love. And in fact, she was a proponent of radical love. And I thank you also for bringing up the fact that, yeah, uh, even though uh, we can talk in many ways uh, to using specialized language, uh, I am very critical of the lofty. This book opens up with talking about being a child in Jamaica, and also it throughout resists the tendency to look at what's called black life in reductive ways. We are relational. We are people from the poorest of the poor to the wealthy. We are people with humor. We talk about our grandmother, our uncle, our aunts, but we're also never, I don't know any black family that's ever exclusively a black family. We've always been the, today's language, cosmopolitan, but the fact of the matter is there's almost, there's this world in which we're almost bullied to conceal, to hide the many dimensions of what we are. And when we do this, we are committing a form of affective violence on our families, our relatives, our friends, our communities. And ultimately, if we push it, we're forgetting that just as in our families, there's always somebody we don't like. <laughs> there's always somebody, though, we love. And this view about love permeates the text because I have to deal with, in the, t in the end of the day, of this little blue dot, as Carl Sagan puts it, <laughs> You know, this is our home, and we're jeopardizing the fact that despite all of these conflicts and hatred, at the end of the day, any extraterrestrial is going to say, what's up with this family squabble? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And she understood that you can critically love. And I see this book, you may notice I write poetry in the book. And I also, although there is this world of the textual, for me, there is not this boundary between what happens in film, in music, and kitchen conversation. And you may notice in the book, there are many examples of moments of just talking with everybody from a local community activist to my grandmother, to all the way through to also think about other people speak with people they love. And for those who would get to the chapter on the political dimensions of black consciousness, they may be surprised to find that Harriet Bailey pops up. And for those who don't know who she is, that's the point. Because Harriet Bailey was Frederick Douglass's mother. And this woman committed an act of radical love that played a crucial role in trying to understand what it is to be a human being who understands their things greater than yourself. She didn't know she was producing a Frederick Douglass, but the fact of the matter is, and what I bring up the political significance of the book, is that for a Frederick Douglass to understand what it is to value the love offered by that enslaved woman in a world that says her love is worthless. And that understanding of love is what brings us in the critique of the lofty into the understanding of what it is to do what among the Zulus, when they say hello, so which simply means, I see you, I see you. Yeah, I mean, the breadth of this book is very striking, um, Lewis. Please um, let me put that on, on the record. It's a really unusual in, it, in its breadth. Um, here I want to make a parochial re reply to what you just said uh, and to raise another theoretical concept which is very alive in this book. The parochial reply is that in our you know, situation after the American summer, um, of a couple of years ago, um, there's a kind of polarization that speaks to generational divisions in those active in and around the fields of black politics. And, and that says that um, there's, a, there's a split really between those who consider blackness to be an, essentially a political phenomenon. And they very often use this, this term political blackness to try and complicate the relationship to embodiment. And, and others who, who see it only as a kind of um, corporeal descriptor, essentially, I'm not downplaying those dimensions of racism. But I think one of the things I, I, I respond to in this book is this sense that all blackness is deeply political and politicizing. And that, that seems very important to the, the sort of intellectual energy that you've orchestrated here. And the second thing, as I said, which relates to your own body of work as a philosopher, but seems made concrete in many of the arguments here, is really your critique of bad faith. And that's been a very important category and concept for you from the very beginning of your publications, at least those of which I'm aware. Now, how do you see bad faith in the moment that we inhabit right now? Because so many people prefer nihilism and fatalism and quietism and have perhaps been able to articulate a sense of, of blackness that fits with and justifies those choices. And you're, you're clearly in a very, very critical relationship with those responses in this book. Absolutely. In fact, um an ongoing critical relationship, as we say. 
There are many ways to talk about bad faith. You may notice whenever I define a term in the book, I never do it in a singular definition because human reality, as I argue, is very rich. And I, we have orientations, we have multi-dimensions. But I could begin by just saying one way of looking at bad faith is that bad faith is a flight from a displeasing truth into the arms of a pleasing falsehood. And one of the reasons pleasing falsehoods are so seductive is because they're easier, they're more manipulable, they're predictable, etc. We talked about uh, bell hooks earlier. One of the thing bell, things Bell understood about radical love is it's hard work. And one of the things that about politics, political life, is it's hard work. Ironically, there's been a commodification of politics. There are people who are able to sell their identities as political. But if you scratch the surface, you'll find out that they're confusing moralism with politics. It's easier to be moralistic because you just divide the world into good guys and bad guys, good women, bad women, you know, us and them. But, but that reductive view uh, basically elides the fact that if one is trying to build a world that human beings can actually live in, it means always, as you're creating something, you're always losing something. And this complicated responsibility, that element, is what the people who are commodifying and using, reducing themselves to spirits of seriousness and bad faith, that is what they're looking for. It's just easier for them. They like to say things like, burn it all down. But the question is, okay, then everybody's homeless. I mean, we need to find a way to build livable homes. There are people who would cite Audre Lorde and say master's tools, you know, and kind of tear down the master's house. And I have to remind people, you know, most masters don't have tools. It's the enslaved people. It's the everyday people who have tools and build things. We built those houses. And if we can build those houses, we can take on the task of building better houses, or at least more livable ones, which is another way of defining the better. In the book, I make a distinction between small b black consciousness and uppercase b black consciousness. The small b black consciousness is the bad faith one. It's the one that's imposed upon us, that locks us into the notion of ourselves as abject and pure negation, as if we're just nothing but things. And I make this quip in the book, you know, to my knowledge, most people who are designated black don't get up in the morning and when we brush our teeth, we look in the mirror and sigh, oh God, still black. We just brush our teeth and go around our day. And there's also this way of talking about our lives as if they're not things that are beautiful in our lives. I mean, I, I love black music. I love reading the poetry we have. I love our foods. I love all these things. But I don't love it in a way that makes me have to degrade other people's way of living in order for the way I live to be special. I love when I get to travel. Um, I'm one of those black people from multiple backgrounds. When I'm India, I'm among my Tamil communities. When I'm, I'm from Ethiopian background, when I'm in Southern Africa, I love that. I know my Sephardic and my Misraki Jewish background. I love all those things. But my point is, it's not a zero-sum game. And so if we come into this question of politics, you may notice I really try to dis distinguish the tendency today to sell moralism 
you know, this kind of, you know, snake and oil stuff and get down to the question of getting things done. And the thing we have to understand about the political work of getting things done, we have to take that moment and say, it's not about me. <laughs> you know, I got to work out my crap, you know, if I'm going to be dealing with my family and analysts and stuff. But it's always, it really is always on a planetary level. It's always about us. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with that, but I think that there are a number of problems elsewhere in the book that complicate that gesture that you just described. Uh, and the argument, the recurrent argument about bad faith might be one way of opening that up. Elsewhere, you speak of a retreat into identity. You speak about your distaste for purity and you play with, if I may say, and that's a good thing to play with something, to play with ideas especially, you play with a kind of defense of the protean subject, the, um, the protean subject. I mean, I know that when you talk about the Creole history of your own becoming, I know that one of the things racism does is it bonds with proteophobia. And that there's one thing having a big lexicon of, of the Negro, you know, and turning to page 500 and say, ah, now I know who I'm dealing with. And uh, closing the book and organizing the violence around that identification. But there's also a sense in which that, those Caribbeans, I mean, this is not confined to the history of the Caribbean, but it's associated, I think, with that region of the world more than many others for obvious reasons. So there's also a sense in which some of the time that power that violence, that colonial project doesn't know who it's dealing with. So there is a there's a kind of protean aspect to the object of that of that violence. And I think I feel in this book, particularly in your discussion of of, uh, of trans questions, you know, I feel a defense of proteanism as a kind of larger motif, not even actually consigned only um, to, to, to the raci racialized forms of politics, but to a kind of refusal of identity, actually, ultimately, in, in the sense of, of singularity. Do you, do you follow me? Um, I totally follow you. I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things to remember, and I'm glad you brought up bad faith earlier, because, uh, you know, there are many ways I talk about it, but bad faith is fundamentally a lie. And we already know that... Um, if you're going to build colonialism, if you're going to build all kinds of the, 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 the forms of violence to restrict or discipline the behaviors of people, uh, you would have to use so many re material resources to maintain it. it. It will fail. So it is far more efficient to get the people to police themselves, to get the people to be, as Gugi Wationgo points out, to have the colonization of the mind. It's much more easy to get people to believe these pleasing falsehoods. And for the most part, Euro-modern colonialism, racisms of all kind, all kinds of dehumanization are built upon lies. The lies they're built upon require identifying a human being and then denying her, his, or their humanity. You have to say, that's not really a human being after you've identified them. <laughs> and so once we understand this, uh, what is it that you're trying to run away from in that identifying, which is different from identity? And what is being submerged, repressed, or dissociated is the openness, the openness, the possibility, the freedom. And in not only my writings on the philosophical anthropology of 
how we talk about human beings, but also the disciplinary levels. As in, in my books, I talk about bad faith at the level of disciplinarity. I call it disciplinary decadence. And I actually argue even beyond interdisciplinarity. I argue because interdisciplinarity could have different disciplines like ships in the night. You know what I mean? They're all treating, them, treating themselves as holes, as complete. But I argue for transdisciplinarity, but I go beyond that. I actually am a defender of us to have forms of trans thinking because it reminds us of how much we are complicit in closing, closing our communicative relationship with others. And there are many ways in ordinary language today, there are people who are, um, as we know, there, there are ways in which any category of openness can slide into a closure. So there are people who would like to have closed trans discourses. But I actually defend open trans discourses. And this is one of the reasons why I bring it up in the book. I was, um, I got into a, a certain controversy, uh, not uh, um, out of anything other than I don't believe in supporting people privately. And so when there was a young woman who was being attacked for raising the question of transraciality, uh, I did not want to be one of those. I found out about it when I was coming back from South Africa from giving a series of lectures. Ironically, I was just in a conversation with someone around that very issue, and I heard about this weird controversy. And I read through it, and I thought, well, gee, if I received that paper, I would have recommended it get published. So I wrote the author and said, and please share my email. And I went on Facebook and just publicly supported her. And from there, then went to the next move. Because you see, you can perfunctorily support someone. I didn't want it to be about me. It became important to me to learn from that exercise. Let me see what happens if I engage her project, not simply support it. And I found this whole world of connections at what I think about disciplinarily, politically, many other levels. And, and, you know, in my writings, I always point out, you know, we're not the last statement on intelligence and possibility of life on our planet. And so, and if we, if we, if we do what needs to be done, and by what needs to be done, I mean where subsequent generations, whoever they are, with the freedom to live as how they are, if they're able to look back at us and say, thank you, we've done something really good. And so this is a subtext in the book. And you're right. It is on the, in the book. It's there's, there are people who want to have these closures. And I had to probe throughout, even in my own discourse, this question of openness. And that is one of, and I see that also as what political work is about. Because I argue political work ultimately reaches to those we'll never know. We may even never be able to understand. But the human being has the capacity to love that which is radically different.
Well, uh, Lewis, I wanted to talk about irony, but it, uh, we're out, uh, or we reached this moment where I should be, as a responsible interlocutor, opening the opportunity for people who are um, unseen but want to engage you with their own questions to transmit them through me. And I'm looking at my box on my screen, um, waiting for some of that material to appear, but it's not appearing. So I think what I'll do is I'll abuse my position as uh, the uh, interlocutor, primary interlocutor, to ask you about about irony, because irony also occupies a very important place in um, managing the tension between um, what you described earlier on as as morality as opposed to politics in your uh, outlook. And I, you know, uh, when you were talking about lies and truth earlier on, I was thinking about Nietzsche and Nietzsche's um, life as an ironist. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of wondering about why irony is so important to you. Irony is at the heart of philosophical anthropology. I mean, when I go, because you and I could read ancient languages, human, humanity has been struggling with irony throughout. This is one of the reasons why we have myths and tragedies where the winner loses and the loser wins. This is one of the reasons why there is this, and not only Nietzsche, but Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky. We see irony also in Anna Julia Cooper. Fanon was full of irony. Irony is one of these ways in which human beings have also dealt with the majesty of power. Because sometimes the people who can beat their chest with the biggest strength in the room ultimately deal with the irony that no matter how much they accumulate, no matter how much force, uh, as we know, uh, we, we, we've seen it with all great dictators, leaders, and all of that. All those things come down to is the manifestation of their weakness. Sometimes power is in our ability to not fetishize power. The irony is sometimes that somebody who may appear the weakest in the room may actually be the person who embodies the most strength. And so that is, this is part of human reality. I, we have ironic relationship with ourselves. Well, thank you, Lewis. Now, there are two questions um, that seem in many ways to be the same. So let, I'll do them first. And, and the first, first of them is, for all the commercial success of Black Panther, which is another important topic within your book, has it had any significant real-world impact on the lives and power held by black people? Or is Wakanda forever just a Hollywood con? And the other version of this is a, a more generous one. one I say, what kind of impact have films like Sorry to Bother You and Get Out? Out, had on black identity. Now, there is a question about popular representation in, in Hollywood, and I, I'm curious to know, my version of that question is, why are those films so important to you in the argument you want to make? I am, um, one of the, the big issues today when one is arguing or making a point is increasingly people lack shared texts. And you may notice when I talk about each of the films, I, I offer my criticisms of them, but it's actually not, I, I try to pick films that it's highly likely people have seen because then they can engage me, they could disagree with me, they could say, oh, I didn't think of it that way. So it was, I see them more as an opportunity to carry the conversation further. I don't think these films, um, 
transformed. There's this this wish people have that art could immediately transform people's lives, and I see art as part of how people use imagination. But one of the things some people would be shocked by is how I talk about these films. For instance, I talk about Get Out less about whether the film is great and more about how the film has an insight that some people who claim they don't like the way black people look, smell, etc., may actually desire black people. I argue against the idea that people hate black bodies. Actually, there are a lot of people who love black bodies. They just hate the idea of a black consciousness behind their body. The other thing is, um, if we get into, there are lots of things. I talk about the mythopoetics of um, Black Panther, and I point out things that some people may overlook. They don't even realize that it's, it was initially, the, the very character was actually based on Jewish mythology. But then I point out that Jewish mythology is based on East African mythology. But, but what I argue is the true superhero in the film is not the Black Panther individual. It's not any of that stuff. It's about ultimately the idea of what would it mean for there to be a political community that could actually raise certain challenges. And so I actually argue that film's real superhero is Wakanda, but now we can get into some real political debates about what kind of polis, what kind of political, what kind of polity is that? And I think that's a healthy thing. I think it's healthy for black people to be arguing, disagreeing. Some could even hate it. But I think it's very important for us to begin to have that critical consciousness. Well, that connects up actually with uh, with the next question that's popped up here. And it's really about how at the moment the US right are really concerned with obsessively with the dangers supposedly uh, represented by the explosion of critical race theory across your educational system. And the questioner says, well, history show this backlash to anti-racism to be a blip or is it a more substantive threat to racial justice? How do you see the current um, concern with the encroachments of critical race theory in your polity? Well, basically what we're witnessing is something called lawfare. This is, a, this is something developed by the right. It is, uh, there are lawfare institutes, there are all kinds of ways of studying this. And it basically uses a technique that is, goes all the way back from practitioners of fascism. And basically what it is, it uses the fallacy of the loaded question. And for those who don't know the loaded question is when somebody walks up and says something like, so if you stop beating your wife, and uh, of course, how do you answer that? You know, the answer is, well, I've never been beating my wife, or I don't even have a wife. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, what they do is transform a concept, a very progressive concept, a very important concept into a slur. And it puts you on the defensive by ultimately responding to the slur when in fact, the phenomenon they're talking about doesn't exist. Uh, critical race theory is not being taught in elementary schools, secondary schools, etc. But here's the thing. To respond that way is like the problem with the loaded question. It, you don't get to answer, wait a minute, it might be a very good thing for critical race theory to be taught in elementary schools, et cetera, because critical race theory is about truth. And we know bad faith is about avoiding displeasing truths. The, the fact of the matter is young people can handle, hey, surely a lot of young black people deal with truth all the time when it's hitting us. Young white kids are far less fragile than these parents present them to be. But the thing is, 
you can imagine how absurd it would be if people are saying, would you believe they're teaching children mathematics in elementary school, and secondary school, etc.? You could turn anything that is connected to increase our capacity to be thinking beings into a slur. And so this is part of an effort to rally the base for the next elections in the United States, because they know this is what has happened. You know, ironically, in the last election, uh, the presidential element of it, it was actually increasing white male voters that put Biden into office. This, this is an effort to bring those voters back into line. And it's a familiar tactic. I mean, it, there's so many examples of it. But the thing for us to do is not be defensive. The fact is, we as custodians of the truth, as best as we can understand it, have an obligation to continue that struggle. Mm. Thank you. Uh, the next question is actually about music. And of course, this book does include a significant argument, I would say, about um, about the blues in particular, but music more generally. And you make numerous references and observations and commentaries on the significance of, 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 of black musics. Um, now, this question is, can you talk about the significance of black music, such as blues, to black consciousness? So, so the question is really not about black music, but about where black music sits in the pursuit of realization of flourishing of those forms of black consciousness that concern you. Sure. I mean, the first thing is, and this is something Fanon noticed as well. You see, um, there's a tendency to want, for, for, for some critics to want to impose a form of Manichaeanism and closure onto black music. They want to, they, they, they're looking for their projected notion of authenticity. So there's some who think black music should just be entertainment. It, some people think black music should just be about suffering. There's a long list of what people think black music should be. However, one of the things that I point out about the blues, and you brought up irony earlier, the blues is a wonderfully meta-reflective form of performance. Because in the blues, if we look at blues structure, blues structure not only repeats, but it brings dissonance in. And the dissonance in life is part of maturation. It's part of understanding that in the midst of our joy can also be our suffering. In fact, a lot of the, the whole planet right now is dealing with the blues. But if we think also at the level of lyrics, if we look at blues lyrics, blues lyrics often present a problem, but sneak in a kind of self-reference to the singer or the songwriter as having a form of complicity in the problem. And the complicity is not to blame the victim. It's to bring to the forefront the, the, the afflicted's capacity to act. In other words, agency. One of my favorite blues is uh, when Dinah Washington you know, says, I, I got drunk and took my man to his wife's front door. <laughs> and, uh, and then she says, at, under under Dunumont, but she was a 45 packing mama, so I ain't gonna do that no more. And she's being humorous and ironic with her, herself. But the thing about the music is not just at the level of lyrics. The thing about music that I that I often bring up, I also see it as an allegory. And what I mean by that is that 
in music, there is constantly the capacity to bring to it something that makes it intelligible yet different at the same time. We know this not only in improvisation, but we also know something else that happens. And there are many examples I could give, but I'll give one briefly with jazz. One of the things I know as a jazz musician is I could show up somewhere where we've never had a rehearsal. We've never even chosen what's, what we're going to play. In fact, we may even have a set at all. And someone could just count off in any meter, whether it's an 11 eighths, 4-4, whatever it is, and we could start playing and we could play music. And the reason this can happen is because each of us, in order to play, must listen to each other. And I see this as a profound allegory about democracy. Because you see, not only do we listen to each other, but in the listening, my obligation as a musician is to bring out whoever is taking the lead, her, his, or their best performance. You sound like Uncle so Ralph, you. Lewis. You sound like <laughs> Uncle Ralph. Well, I don't mind because, you know, when I'm playing my drums and somebody's smoking, that's my moment to give accents to make that person play better. And, and lo and behold, what do they do? They stop and they permit me to do something to communicate with the audience. And I've often wondered, what would a society be like if it's really committed not to who is going to be superior to whom, but a commitment for people to bring out the best in themselves, whatever that may be. It's a very different thing. Yeah, and so, and I see that in a lot of black music, but I also see in black music a, a lack of sugarcoating of life. And I'm talking about all the way back to 19th century black music. And again, this is not to valorize it because there are other kinds of music that do this. I see this also when I'm in India and I check out Punjabi music. But the thing about music that's so profound is that music is always bringing possibility. There, you know, it, when music can make you dance, music can also make you consider what your relationship to it, and also music dares. It dares to make you not ashamed of joy. Well, and think about it. If, I mean, I could go on. You could yeah, probably. No, I mean, I, 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 I can never get to that point, Lewis, because I'm always the worst person in the band. So I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I think the love and the joy that you spoke of is really, is really something that's implicated in my presence there with the others who are all much better and more interesting musicians than me. Now, the next question is, does Lewis think it's okay for white novelists and screenwriters to write black characters. And I think this is something that is touched on in your book as a concrete question of the relationship between Stan Lee and co and the characters that they created in the original version of the Black Panther. And then, of course, the subsequent iterations of that story. Where does the line, asks our questioner, fall between the cultural appropriation and legitimate, unrestrained art? Ah, well, as many people know, I'm a critic of the the cultural appropriation argument. I actually argue that art, excellent art, belongs to everybody, period. The big confusion is that there have been people, this is where racism comes in. What racism does is to impose upon the production of a particular group of people the idea that it's impossible for them to produce art 
and it rewrites the history in such a way that the people who are credited with producing that art becomes those who have in fact stolen it. I think it's a distinction between appropriation and theft. And, what, and a lot of what we're dealing with is theft. The idea of, I mean, John Whiteman being the, the you know, king of jazz is bizarre. Movies and, you know, all of those things are false, but that's a different issue. Good music, good art belongs to everybody, but the misrepresentation of the history is a form of epistemic injustice. We should fight against that. And when it comes to white, the issue of a white um, writer having black characters, the thing for that white writer to do is not actually to project his or her or their ego onto black people, is to do what any good novelist, any good writer should do, which is to understand that writing is also an act of study, to be a student of the world and learn and, and focus on the humanity of those people. In short, as Du Bois would put it, don't make the people into problems, examine the problems they face as human beings. Yeah, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Okay, the next question. You suggested that instead of focusing on burning down the house, we should instead aim to build more livable homes. Now the question is, what does that look like in your imagination? Oh, I, I could go beyond my imagination, in fact. In fact, we have a concrete example of this with the very fact that you and I are speaking right now. There were people who took the position that only discipline, let me use discipline as a metaphor. The only disciplinary home it was supposedly white, thought was supposedly white, and the right way to study people who are not white is to apply whiteness to them. But there was a certain critical point in which the response was, wait a minute, we are resources of thought, ideas, and that is a false representation of humanity. And so we began to build different disciplinary homes and as we built them, of course, there was the narcissistic rage. People were saying, we're not rigorous, we're not this, we, what are we doing? There's no such thing. But we did the work. And that's what created black studies. That's what created cultural studies. That's what created feminist studies, gender studies, queer studies. And sure, the haters are going to hate. But the point is, it's for the lovers to build love. And when we build those homes, there's a certain point, let's face it. If the party and the food is better at our house, the, the masters are going to say, yo, why, why is nobody coming over? What's going on? That's the better house. The better house is you're comfortable. You can live in it. And you're affirmed in dignity, respect, and freedom. And I think we're doing it at disciplinary levels, but there are many other levels concretely. We need to now, and Fanon argued for this in La Dagne de la Terre, but there are many others who have. We also need to rethink the way we think of everything from cities to, to how we think of food, to how we think of how we relate to people with technology. We are in the act of doing it. And there are those who would like us to stay trapped in a closed past that blocks the way to deal with this creative spirit. So yeah, do the work. That's what we got to do, do the work. I was thinking, I mean, a couple of years ago, I taught 
June Jordan's plan for rebuilding Harlem after the riots in the uh, early 60s um, with her novel His Own Wear, which, which takes the, those notions and ideas and translates them into a kind of exploration of how the city might itself be transformed uh, and the relationship between the interior of the home space and the exterior of the civic space, the political space of, of citizenship and so on, would be altered as a result. But I think that, although there is one more question, Lewis, I don't if I trust you to answer it fast enough. Here it is. I'll be as quick as I Thank can. You. It's from Emma. And she says, in your book, you pay a lot of attention to language and etymology. Looking at the genealogy of the words we use, can you tell us briefly more about why this is so significant to building your philosophical argument and understanding? Absolutely. The short answer is that language, I see language as part of our living communicative performance. But language also has ancestry, and language will have descendants. And when I do work of archaeolinguistics, what I try to point out is that each term, each word, is actually connected. They tell stories of a wider communicating humanity. And for those when they read the book, look closely at the archaeolinguistics, at the etymological exercises I make. I never just show what a word is. I tell a story of its evolution and the communities and what they were up to in bringing it forth and what we could do in our acts of building language. And there's an, there is both an ethics to that and a politics to that, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, our final question, here we are. And it's a parochial question, um, but one I'm sure you would like to, to say something about. The Obama presidency felt like a miracle at the time. Well, not to me, and perhaps not to you, but to this person. Has its impact been subsumed by history, or is there a powerful legacy there? Jane Gordon and I wrote a book called Of Divine Warning, Reading Disaster in the Modern Age. And it was published during Obama's first term. And what we pointed out is, unfortunately, what many people fail to see is that not only Obama, but it was being done with Mandela, was being couched in the language of moralism to disarm the importance of what we need for real social change. Ultimately, political change, politics is about power. It's not simply about this, the moral symbol. And the, 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 the locking of Mandela or Obama into the language of moral symbols failed to address the infrastructural political realities we need to deal with as we move on. And so, sure, there will be symbolic value. It was important there, but we have to understand that it's not really about presidents and individuals. That's about the idolatry situation again. It's about radical democracy. It's about what we need to do as the kind of living creatures we are to build something in which power is not, is not functioning as the diminishing of others, as the reduction of people's capacity to be able to build possibility, but to shift power into enabling others to be able to build things and have access to the conditions of doing so that could perhaps make us better than ourselves today. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. 
But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.